0: Good morning, Redemption. Sometimes things can get lost in translation. An author can have a message, but the translator muck up its meaning. The American Dairy Association, for example, ran an ad campaign a while back called uh, Got Milk. You might remember Got Milk with a little question mark in the end, and the idea was, hey, do you have some milk in your fridge? If not, you should go and pick some up from us, right? Uh, but they ran this ad campaign in Mexico, and when the translators translated it into Spanish, they had billboards all across uh, Mexico saying, "Are you lactating?" <laughs> <laughs> Different meaning, right? Or uh, there was also, you know, Kentucky Fried Chicken. Uh, They're famous for their motto, their slogan, is finger looking good. And so they were having this ad campaign in China with billboards that when translated into Chinese said, we'll eat your fingers off. (laughs) Or one more, Pepsi, you may remember had a zombie themed campaign a few years back and the idea was these zombies on the rampage and uh, the idea was Pepsi makes you come alive, right? Uh, Come alive with Pepsi. But then when they ran the translation and ran these ads internationally, it said, Pepsi brings your ancestors back from the dead. (laughs) This is scary. (laughs) Similar words, different meaning. But sometimes you can even get the words right and still have the meaning wrong. Uh, We call this a double entendre in English where you can have the same phrase, but the same phrase can actually carry multiple meanings. They've seen this over the years with the number of uh, humorous newspaper headlines that have run with unintentional double entendres, such as there was one that ran a newspaper headline that said, "Miners refuse to work after death. But man, I'm down in the grave and my boss is still coming after me. <laughs> Another one said, uh, children make nutritious snacks. <laughs> it's like, I'm going to cannibalism here or something. Uh, another one said, a girl hit my car in the hospital. They're <laughs> going, How did you get that car into the hospital? <laughs> one read, uh, Criminals get nine months in violin case. They <laughs> go, Dude, it's cramped in here. Get us get us out. <laughs> Finally, one more, uh, a juvenile court to try shooting defendants. And I didn't think we did that things that way. <laughs> right. uh, so, same words, but two different meanings. We call that a double entendre. Well, today, I'm gonna look at a divine entendre, a divine entendre where you can have the same phrase, but two different meanings, only one of them is God's meaning. We're in John 11, and so if you have your Bible, you wanna open up to John chapter 11, or if you got it on your phone, you wanna pull it up on your app, but we're gonna be in John chapter 11, and in this passage we're gonna to see today, there's a high priest named Caiaphas, and as high priest, he's essentially like a, a translator for God to the people, he's repping God to the people. Uh, and Caiaphas brings a message, and he means one thing by it. He basically says, Jesus has to die to save the nation. He means one thing by that, but God means another. He's actually given an unintentional prophecy of what Jesus has come to do. So Caiaphas gets the words right, but the meaning wrong. The title for the message today is Divine Entendre. We're gonna see how God can bring meaning out of the muck and the mess that we make. So let's jump in in John chapter 11, verse 45. We read, many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. When it says seen what he did, it's talking about the resurrection of Lazarus. Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. Uh, Just prior, we looked at that passage last week. And uh, that's a pretty good reason to believe in Jesus. He can raise someone from the dead, right? Uh, But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So some of them are tattletales, right? They're kind of mom, dad, Jesus is doing something he's not supposed to. He's raising people from the grave. So, so the chief priests and the Pharisees, they gathered the council. They get all the senior pastors together for the elders meeting. And they said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Now, the first thing we see here is how you and I can go Breaking Bad, like how we as people go Breaking Bad. That theme, Breaking Bad, that's a show a while back, but it's kind of actually a motif in a lot of shows these days. So if you've seen like Breaking Bad or Good Girls or Ozark or uh, House of Cards, all these themes have in common exploring how kind of quote unquote good upstanding citizens, uh, respected whatever people can kind of turn and go to the dark side and what well, all these shows kind of emphasize is how it's usually not like someone's going out seeking to be evil or to do something wrong, but it's usually they're at a place where they're afraid of losing something that they love or they hold dear. They gotta protect their, their influence, their platform, their place in the world. They gotta protect something they love. And it leads to this cascade of decisions that eventually, eventually brings them down to a very dark place. So House of Cards, for example, season one kind of opens where there's a, uh, a politician who essentially is going, man, if, I, if this comes out, I'm gonna get exposed, the scandal could ruin me. But if I just push this journalist in front of the subway train, then it all goes away. Right? Um, and we see something similar here. where We've got the chief priests and the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, and they're gathering the council and they're going, we've got, we got a problem. And we find that they're afraid of losing their place and their nation. John tells us the reason that they're about to plot against Jesus, the reason they plot against Jesus is because if he goes on like this in verse 48, uh, the Romans will come, they'll take away both our place and our nation. And so they're afraid of losing something they hold dear. Now when they say, Everyone will believe if Jesus keeps on, he's healing people, he's raising people from the dead, he's doing all this amazing stuff. And pretty soon, everyone's gonna believe in him. The Jesus movement is growing. And they realize that when that happens, Jesus is gonna be in control, not them, right? One of the scariest things at times for some church leaders can be when Jesus is more in control of what's going on than they are. right, but here at Redemption, we want that to actually be a a good problem that we have, where Jesus is actually in control. He's driving the train. He is the one who is in charge. We wanna be following his lead. But they say, man, if if this thing gets out of hand and Jesus is in control and this movement is growing, uh, the Romans will come and take away our place. Now, the Romans had established uh, many of these leaders. So we know uh, from history that Romans established Annas and Caiaphas, the two high priests, and put them in their place. And so they were essentially working like puppets to keep the peace with Rome and exert their control over the people. Now, this was a plush lifestyle that it afforded them because they got, they got paid handsomely for their work, right? So they're going, man, if this Jesus thing gets out of hand, we could lose our place because the Romans are gonna say we're not doing our job. And they could crack down on this movement and our nation get taken away. One of the things that's interesting to me is that their public reasoning is different from their private reasoning, right? Like the public reason that they give for standing against Jesus is blasphemy, but their private reasoning behind closed doors is, dude, he's a threat to our power and our control. And you would be surprised at the things that you will do to protect your power and your control when it feels threatened, even by Jesus. Hmm. One famous example of this is uh, the Lance Armstrong story. I don't know if you've seen, there's a documentary that came out a while back called uh, The Armstrong Lie, and it was exposing kind of a documentary on the story of Lance Armstrong, what's been called by many the greatest deception in sports history. And so Armstrong was a hero. You're talking about someone who had won seven Tour de France, uh, won the Tour de France seven times, that had beat cancer and come back, who was in the hospital visiting kids I remember when I was younger we all had like the yellow wristbands the live strong wristbands you know so he 's at the height of infant, international popularity and fame and prestige and he's got this massive platform and he's using it for these really good things uh, but behind the scenes uh, there were some dark secrets right he'd been uh, doping and so uh, he and others are, like have been using performance enhancing drugs and different things to beat out the competition and It was interesting even this documentary like some of the lengths to which they would go like having blood drawn at one oxygenated level and then going and doing the testing and then later having the doctor on the ride of the race like inject you with the oxygenated blood again Uh, crazy stuff like that but what was most fascinating about the documentary was they said this isn't really a story about doping it's a story about power and what people will do to hold on to that power as part of the Craziness what happened was when there were whistleblowers who were on the loop in the loop and knew what was going on and were threatening to blow the whistle on Lance, uh, the lengths to which he leveraged his influence, his prestige, his money, his celebrity, his power to crush them and destroy and ruin their lives, simply because they sought to speak the truth. Now, I don't think Lance went into it thinking I'm I'm gonna do this thing, but like many of us, we all have in us the ability to break bad when we fear the potential of losing something that we value. Lance was afraid of losing his place and his nation, so to speak, his platform and what he'd accomplished. And there was a quote by him in the movie I found interesting. He said, I like to win, but more than anything, I can't stand the idea of losing because to me, that equals death. And I wonder how many of us to lose can feel like threatening death. And it raises the question for you and for I, are you willing to lose your platform to follow Jesus? Are you willing to lose some of your prestige or your popularity, if it come down to it, to follow Jesus? Are we willing to count the cost and go, even if it means this, Jesus, I am still in, I am still going to follow you. I was talking uh, this last week to uh, someone who was an atheist and we'd had some public conversations as an atheist and all and someone had, he, he'd read uh, my book, someone kind of referred it to him, him to it and he had a couple other encounters and then after we talked, behind the scenes, he comes to me and he goes, hey, actually, I've started following Jesus. And I'm like, what? That's crit. Wow, that's cool. You know, like, well, then why I, I was talking to you out there as an atheist in front of all the people, you know, he said, well, I started following Jesus. And he's like, but I, can you help me navigate? He's going like, the reality is, as soon as I come out uh, uh, in public with this, like I'm gonna lose probably my platform, my my follower, my people who are um, following my work because of this. And and so he's in a spot of going, hey, I gotta count the costs of publicly following Jesus. I've talked with uh, many friends in Vietnam and Cambodia over the years, uh, where I did a lot of work in the past. And a number of Vietnamese and Cambodian leaders who talk about a big part, a common thread in many stories is where they said, hey, I I wanna follow Jesus. Jesus got a hold of their lives. One of the biggest obstacles or threats was going, man, if I do, my family will likely disown me. And for some they did, they're like, man, if you, start following Jesus, you identify with that. It felt like a betrayal against uh, their family identity, other things, so uh, they're going, man, I love my family, and especially in a culture where that's like, just so central to one's life and identity. I love my family, I love Jesus, and I have to count and weigh the cost of publicly identifying with him. I think of my wife, Holly, when she first came to faith, and. As she began, God began convicting her that a number of her friends, there was a lot of gossip and stuff. So she told her best friend at the time, hey, you know what? I'm just not really uh, comfortable with us gossiping about people anymore. And her friend kind of gave her the stink eye, turned away and never spoke to her again, like walked away. And it raises the question, like, are you and I, are we willing to count the cost and lose potentially our place and our nation, so to speak? Lose your, uh, your, your platform, your uh, notoriety, your prestige amongst your community and people around you in order to truly follow Jesus in his way. You know, a number one reason why many young people today are walking away from church and are walking away from God are going, because I grew up and I saw people saying one thing, like we're about Jesus, but then behind the scenes I saw, and then on the other side I saw, actually you guys were willing to compromise and just this pursuit of worldly power to try and get your way and manipulate and control and not lose your place or your influence in the nation or in your circles or in your sphere, and it looks like hypocrisy because you were saying you were about Jesus over here, but then actually you're doing all this other stuff over here, and it feels like you're using Jesus as a means to an end rather than the reality is that Jesus is the end. Jesus is the goal. And so we don't use Jesus as a means to an end of our own agendas. Jesus is the end that we're willing to sacrifice and lay down all of our agendas. And Jesus is calling us, going, are you willing to lay down your agenda and make me your end, make me your goal, even if it were to cost just everything? And the good news of the gospel is that he's worth it. Instead of breaking bad, we've all been breaking bad. We've all been going that route, right? Uh, But the good news of the gospel is that we can break good. We can head towards good in the sense that we make Jesus our goal and our end, and he is worth everything. I believe Jesus is going, are you willing to lose your place in your nation, so to speak, in order to follow the one who can raise you from the grave and raise you from the dead? All right, well, they've got their council going. Let's pick it up here in uh, verse 49. 49, but one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know, nothing at all. (laughs) I love that. He's going, you idiots. Like, essentially, you don't realize the gravity of the situation, how serious this is. And he says, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Now, he did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Well, here we see that God can speak a divine entendre. God can make meaning out of our mess. Caiaphas, we're told, was the high priest that year, and the high priest essentially was like the translator. They were supposed to represent God to the people and speak on behalf of God to the people. And Caiaphas here, he, you know, essentially he's speaking on behalf of God, but he's mucking up the message, right? Like Caiaphas is essentially going, are you lactating? And God's like, I said, got milk, right? Like Caiaphas is essentially like going, we'll eat your fingers off. And God's like, no, I so said this is going to be finger looking good. Right? Caiaphas is going, dude, this is going to bring your ancestors back from the dead. And God's like, yeah, actually, that one's kind of right. That, that one works. <laughs> That's what Jesus is up to and going to do here. He tells them, uh, it is better for you that one man die. Uh, now, that phrase better. It can also mean profitable or in your best interest. And so he's going, it's better for you, it's better for us on this council that he die so we don't lose our plush lifestyle, that we keep our place here in society. That's his meaning. But God said, no, it's it's better for you all, like not just you, this council, but you, the nation. And God goes, not only is this better for the nation, as a whole, but for all of the children of God scattered throughout the world to bring back together. So God and Caiaphas are using the same words here, but with two different meanings. Caiaphas says, it's better that uh, Jesus dies to save the nation. The Alanis Morissette kind of pops out of the back and isn't it ironic? Like there's (laughs) an unintentional prophecy he's saying here that's got an irony to it of going, Caiaphas means it's better that Jesus died to save our skin. And God's going, no, it's better that Jesus died to save you from your sin. Caiaphas is going, it's better that Jesus died to appease the Romans. And God's going, no, it's better that Jesus died to release you from the powers of sin and Satan and slavery and death. Caiaphas is going, it's better for our little nuclear family here. And God's going, no, it's better for the, not only the nation, but the family of God scattered throughout the world as a whole. They're using the same words, but they have two different meanings attached to them. Because the cross is the great divine entendre. The cross is the great divine entendre where a humanity and God are both involved at the same event, but with two very different meanings, two very different purposes. That at the cross, our intention is to uh, put Jesus away, to get rid of him. And yet at the cross, God's intention is to unite Jesus with us most fully in the fullness of our condition and the corruption of the grave in order to raise us with him, united with him forever. But at the cross, we are out to get rid of God and establish and protect our distance and our autonomy from his claim on us. And at the very same time that at the cross, God is drawing most closely to us, entering into our distance to meet us in the depths of our condition. Be united with him. The cross is the great divine entendre. And we may find ourselves asking, like, well, how can this be? How can it be that God and humanity are both involved in uh, the same event, but from different ways? And one way of thinking about it is the destination that the event is oriented towards, right? Like, our destination is to get away from God, God's destination is to get us with him to this other place, right? Like, so think about it, it'd be like you're going, driving out west. And both God and Caiaphas, God and us, are driving through Blythe, right? Like we're both going, hey, we're gonna go through Blythe. Uh, The cross is like Blythe, right? Not necessarily this place you wanna be. It's a a gateway to another destination. Only Caiaphas is heading to Death Valley, whereas God is heading to San Diego, the coast, the beach, vacation. God and Caiaphas are both, Looking at involved in the cross, God and humanity are both looking at involved in the cross, and yet God's intention and purpose is different. Even though our purpose is evil, God's intention is good. God's purpose is to save the world. This got me thinking of some different uh, uh, double entendres that I think actually work for the cross. Uh, one of these is a church sign that Says, says, uh, we love hurting people, right? <laughs> now, all the difference gets made on whether that word hurting is a verb or an ad- adjective, right? Now, Caiaphas is kind of going uh, verb, right? He's going, hey, we love hurting people. We love hurting Jesus. What Caiaphas and what we are out to do is to hurt Jesus in order to get rid of him, to protect the place and the nation. Only what God is up to on the cross is going, no, I love hurting people. God's using the adjective going, because I love hurting people in a world that has been ravaged and torn apart by sin, I am meeting them in the depths of the muck and the mire and the mess they've made in order to redeem and restore and make whole by uniting you and I with his self. The cross declares that yes, God loves hurting people. He enters into the hurt and the pain with us. It's interesting when Caiaphas says, it's better that one man die so that the nation will not perish. That word perish, it's the same word that John used earlier in the famous John 316, God so loved the world, he gave his only son, whoever believes in him would not perish, right, would not perish. Jesus came that you and I might not perish because God loves people who are hurting and has gone all the way to the cross to unite with us and to bring us back with himself. Another double entendre, Uh, there's a phrase I used in my first book back in the day uh, that was, God is on a mission to get the hell out of earth. (laughs) And now uh, that phrase though, it's double entendre, it can work two ways. Uh, On the one way, it's sort of the caricature, the uh, false gospel, a a way that is not true would be to say that uh, God is on a mission to get us the hell out of earth. That would be an escapist story where God's like, man, the world's such a mess. And so uh, beam me up, Scotty, get me out of Dodge, just kind of get me out of here. What we find in the gospel is no, it's not that. It's that God is on a mission to get the hell out of us on earth that Jesus has gone to the cross to conquer the power of sin, death, and hell and to make you and I and his church a place where heaven has come to earth, that we are reconciled, places where things are on earth as it is in heaven in you and I, and that his kingdom is breaking in and pushing the forces of sin and darkness and hell out. God is on a mission at the cross to get the hell out of earth. And this means that God can make a meaning out of your mess out of the mess and the muck that you've made, there may be some of you here this morning, you're going, man, some of the mistakes I've made, if you knew uh, the the things that I've done, the addictions that I've fallen into, the people I've wounded, and God's going, actually, I can take the addictions, I can take the brokenness, I can take the areas that you have been wounded, I can actually use those to make you a minister of healing to others, God can actually take the hard parts of your story and use them redemptively to bring grace and truth into the lives of others. I love, uh, Henry Nowen had a phrase back in the day, wounded healer. God uses wounded healers, he meets us in our wounds, and he uses the healing he brings to us to bring healing into the lives of others. And for some of you, I wonder if there are words that people have spoken over your life, into your life, that have been like Caiaphas, that have been mistranslations, mismeanings of what God would actually say to you. Maybe those words have been spoken by translators, so to speak, to people who are supposed to represent the voice of God in your life. Maybe that was a, a father who misrepresented the heavenly father. Maybe that was a spouse who misrepresented Christ as husband. Maybe that was a friend who misrepresented Christ as our brother and our friend. And God, I believe, wants to fix the wrong meanings that have been spoken. So maybe they told you that you were worthless, and God goes, no, that was a mistranslation. The real thing I'm saying is that you are worthy because of Christ and his blood shed and what he has done for you. You are worthy to be exalted on high with Jesus and his people forever, seated, at the right hand of, seated with him by the right hand of the Father. Maybe the words you had spoken into your life were, man, you'll never amount to anything. And God wants to tell you this morning, no, you never had to amount to anything because my grace is sufficient for you and my power is made perfect in your weakness. And so you don't need to perform for it. You need to strive for it. You don't need to try and and leap for it and grasp it. I have come to you to bring you value and worth and you amount to, I gave everything to be with you and your value is not in how good you are, it's in my goodness for you. There may be some of you who the message you heard from a bad translator was that, man, I never loved you. And Christ, the husband of his church, says at the cross, I've always loved you. Christ has a bad translation and one of the reasons I have entered the muck and the mire at the cross is to bring my new uh, divine entendre to the messed up human meanings of the sin and broken world that has messed up the bad translations. And Jesus is going, man, stop going to the translator. Now you can come to the source, right? You no longer need to go to the one who messed up the meaning. You can go to the maker. You can go to our heavenly father. You can go to Jesus, our good high priest who is better than Caiaphas, right? and who speaks a true and lasting living word into the false messages that the enemy has spoken in our broken world. The cross is the great divine entendre. One thing I actually kind of love about this though is that uh, God uses Caiaphas, right? Like God uses Caiaphas, only Caiaphas looks like kind of a fool in the process. (laughs) God uses Caiaphas, but he looks a bit like a, fool. And it makes me think that, man, I think sometimes maybe being used by God can be a bit overrated, right? Like many of us in Christian circles, we're always saying, man, I want to be used by God. God, God, use me. God, how can I use me? And I remember hearing the late Rich Mullins once, a musician, and he was commenting on how, you know, we always say we want to be used by God, but I read through the Gospels and I go, most not many people were really needed by God to fulfill the ultimate kind of part of his plan, right? It's like, yeah, I guess there was Mary, you know, she had to give birth to him. And then there was uh, Caiaphas and uh, Pontius Pilate giving the orders to put him to death. And then maybe there's a soldier pounding the nails into his hand. And Mullins goes, most of the people who are used by God in that bigger picture, really necessary sense, were not very good people. Like a lot of them were not necessarily people you want to emulate. Then he makes this observation in the gospel of Mark where Jesus Calls his disciples, and it says that Jesus called to himself those that he wanted. One's well, observation is, I'd much rather be wanted by God than used by God. And the reality is, God can use a donkey. God can use a God can use all sorts of things, but the cross is the revelation that God wants you. God wants to be with you. He's willing to take not only the messed up meaning and words that others have spoken, but the messed up things that you've spoken and done and the junk that you've brought and to go, I'm actually gonna place though my divining, I'm gonna judo flip it and bring you into life and union with me and encounter you in the very midst of the gnarly things that you've done. Jesus has come to bring meaning into the mess and the muck that we've made. All right, well, there's a hit put out on his life Verse 53, it says, so from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. And continuing in verse 54, we read, Jesus therefore no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. So Jesus is on the run, Uh, the lamb is on the lamb. This is now, the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. First century facial recognition software. They're like, dude, they got the people out. You spot them, let us know, we wanna arrest them. We find here that Jesus doesn't hide from the cross. He prepares for the cross. Jesus isn't hiding from the cross here, he's preparing from the cross. We read that Jesus went uh, near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim. We gotta ask why, why did Jesus go to this town called Ephraim? Uh, And why did Jesus go to the wilderness? You could think, well, he's he's just trying to get away. Uh, But the reality I would suggest is, I think it has everything to do with timing. Jesus knows he has to go to the cross, and here we're about 12 days from Passover, Uh, but he's waiting until the time is right, because the time that he's supposed to die is during Passover week on Passover. John tells us here it's near Passover, but it's also not quite there yet. And this passage, this is the hinge turning point where everything after this, John chapter 12 and after, is going to be Jesus' march towards the cross. This is kind of the the finale of everything that comes before until after this we get the final week of Jesus' life and the week going into Passover. So Jesus goes into the wilderness to prepare himself for what's coming. And it says, many are looking for him. Some are looking out of curiosity and the leaders are looking to arrest and kill him. And it says, many are purifying themselves for Passover, but literally they know that the Passover is coming that's gonna purify them. And unbeknownst to them, they are actually on Jesus's timetable. Like they think that he is on their timetable and they just gotta gotta go get him, but Jesus has actually got them on his timetable. He's waiting until the time is right and appropriate. Uh, Just a little bit earlier in John chapter 10, Jesus just said, nobody takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. So essentially Jesus is going, you guys think you're coming to get me for this reason, but I'm actually at work through all that's going on here for this reason. Jesus is a lion and the cross is his prey. The cross is not only happening to Jesus, Jesus is happening to the cross. Jesus is up to something, accomplishing something, doing something on the cross. And what that is, is to go and find you and I in the muck and the mess that we've made and to bring meaning, divine meaning into that and to unite us with him so that we could be in life with him forever. Jesus is a jaguar and he is out to devour death. The cross uh, reveals that you and I, we are wanted by God. That no one takes Jesus' life from him. He goes to the cross because he wants you and I. Once again, uh, better than being used by God is actually being wanted by God. And that's what we find in the cross is Jesus' willingness to go there. It's also worth asking, uh, why Ephraim? Why does he go to Ephraim? We've been in the series on John uh, for a while now. And, and what we've seen regularly is that uh, all of John's little details are intentional. I think that name Ephraim is intentional and significant because if you were to go back to where Ephraim first appears, it's the name of Joseph's, one of his two sons, Joseph back in the story of Genesis. And what Ephraim means, Joseph names him Ephraim, which means to make fruitful. Because Joseph says, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. I believe Jesus goes to Ephraim knowing that God is about to make him fruitful, even through the land of his affliction. That Jesus' story actually maps very well, on to Joseph. Joseph was sold out by his brothers for 30 pieces of silver and went down into slavery in Egypt and was left for dead and thought as good as dead. And yet, God used him there to exalt him and to ignite him and to make him fruitful and to gather the children of God who've been scattered and to help them survive. And Joseph became like a savior figure, a leader for his people. And similarly now for Jesus, he is preparing in this wilderness. He is about to get sold out for 30 pieces of silver. He is about to go down into his own Egypt, his own land of slavery and death. And yet God is going to be with him and God is going to raise him and exalt him and make him fruitful and bring together the family of God. God will make him fruitful in the land of his affliction. Jesus is preparing for the cross and he's praying to go there for you And for I. And this means that the invitation for us this morning is to come to the meaning maker, the one who can make meaning out of the mess that you've made. There may be some of you this morning who are considering on the verge maybe of breaking bad, of kind of going south, that maybe you think of yourself as like a good, upstanding, whatever person, but there's something that you're clinging hold of, clinging tight to that you don't wanna lose. And in order to protect that, there may be a direction that you're planning to go. And Jesus is going, no, the invitation this morning is for us to confess those things and to break good, to turn towards Christ, who's worth it, It's worth it. I believe there may be others of you this morning, again, there are words that have been spoken into your life, mistranslations of the voice of God, misrepresentations of him. And I believe there may be some of you this morning that God wants to speak a divine meaning to. He wants to confront the falsehood and speak his truth, his meaning into it. So. We're gonna take some time now to pray. I wanna invite you into this time of prayer and we wanna to listen to the voice of God and as so if you would join me and let's let's come to Jesus, the meaning maker together in prayer. Jesus, I wanna pray this morning, Holy Spirit, that you would minister to your people. And first, God, I just wanna ask, we wanna bring before you, I first wanna confess, Lord, if there are any areas that we've been maybe breaking bad or that we're tempting to right now, God, things, directions that we're going that we, we know aren't right. Maybe we've been trying to justify it in our head, we've been thinking it's a means to an end and those kind of things. Just want to bring those before you right now. And so you can feel for even under your breath, or just in your spirit, to bring those before Jesus. And Jesus, we also want to bring before you Words that have been spoken, like Caiaphas, God, that maybe mistranslations of your real heart for us, God, maybe even ha- ha- had Christian jargon, had words that uh, were associated with you, but the meaning was wrong. God, the meaning was off. And so, Holy Spirit, if there are those those words that have been spoken into our lives this morning, we want to invite you, ask you, to administer your truth to your people. Would you? Expose the lie, feel free to, if there is one, feel free even just under your breath and your spirit to bring that before Jesus. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you would speak and minister your truth. Jesus, thank you that the cross didn't just happen to you, that you happened to the cross, that you weren't hiding from it, you were preparing for it. And that you went there for our salvation to bring meaning into the mess that we've made. Jesus, we lift you high as the meaning maker this morning declare that you are worth it all, all glory and all honor and praise, Lord. We give you praise, Jesus, amen. amen. Uh, well, We're gonna receive communion now. And as you receive communion, I invite you again that we come to the meaning maker, the one who entered our mess to bring his divine meaning into it. And so as we take of his body this morning. The bread is a sign of his body given for you. If you're a follower of Jesus, this is for you and you may receive the body. Next we come to the juice, uh, or the wine, a sign of his blood shed. Let's receive the wine. All right, well, as we prepare to worship, if you, to continue in worship this morning, if you have anything on your heart, maybe, maybe it's one of those words that have been spoken that you need uh, just to, to bring before God in prayer even more in depth with someone as so, well. We're gonna have people here at the prayer doors over here on your right would love to pray with you. Maybe you're facing a decision where you've been feeling the weight and the pressure to go breaking bad. Whatever it is, there are people who would love to pray with you. So I want to invite you and encourage you to take advantage of those prayer doors this morning. And let's stand and let's worship Jesus, the meaning maker who has brought the divine entendre. He has brought meaning into the mess that we've made. And because of that, he is worth all glory, honor, and all of our praise. Let's worship him